In 1958, as the U.S. and Soviet Union built up their nuclear missile stockpile of mutual destruction, Jerome Frank, a Harvard Medical School psychologist, argued in The Atlantic that the nature of an individual's unhealthy obsessions can parallel the obsessions of a nation. One observation he made was this. A nation's fear of being attacked leads to aggressive acts, which then forces the other side to behave aggressively, thus proving the nation's fears were justified. He called this behavior a self-fulfilling prophecy. America's fear of Russian aggression has led our politicians and military to see them as dangerous, violent, imperialistic. We then act on those beliefs, resulting in Russian aggression, supporting the truth of our fears. Of course, this works both ways. Frank suggested that mental health begins when the patient becomes aware of his delusion, begins to see that his irrational view of the other is not real. It is an emotional construct needing treatment. Of course, how do you treat the emotional construct of a nation? Frank made his arguments a decade after American forces dropped atomic bombs on Japanese cities. In 1958, Frank argued that, quote, the prize for which the United States and Russia are contending is mutual destruction, yet neither side seems able to change its course, end quote. Sound familiar? I'm Alan Winston with my podcasting partner, Rebecca McKean. We are on our way to Fonda, New York in Becky's cute little red Fiat to have a conversation with some people who can see the insanity of war and climate disaster and decades of U.S.-Russian nuclear buildup. Activists who work to help the rest of us see our unhealthy obsessions that will eventually end in our annihilation. For this Bar Crawl Radio podcast, we are not at a bar, but at the historic Qatari Takagwitha National Shrine for the 25th Annual Qatari Peace Conference, being held at the place of the Iroquois village where the first Native American Catholic saint lived her brief life. When the Iroquoian people wanted to discuss something important that was impacting all of them. They talked about meeting at the edge of the woods, and so we are meeting at the edge of the woods. And if you walk up about a half a mile through the woods here, it's very beautiful, peaceful, ancient tree walk, you cross a little highway, a little road, and you come upon a village of the Haudenosaunee lived in in the 17th century. And um, you can see the longhouses marked out still from the state digs and the people who maintain this property plow it so that you see the longhouses. And, and you are reminded that we are in the presence of a people who, unfortunately, like us, still centuries down the road, are confronted with great power, great power elite, great forces looking for wealth and land and power and control 
and threatening their very sustainability and their existence and their children's future. And so, like them, we once again are asked and invited to come together in this peace grove to try to come to some understanding of what are we to do? How can we change this dynamic? How can we make sustainability and survival real? And so let's put ourselves in the presence of the fact that we are joined with people from generation after generation, and that hopefully we can find solution now and we can be holding our hands out to the next generation saying, peace is possible. This sign here talks about the Iroquois prophet who basically took warring tribes and said, we are all one and we have to live that way. So um, thank you, Gloria, for that reminder last night. That was Maureen Almond, one of the organizers of the Qatari Peace Conference, with some opening remarks. Later, while everyone was at lunch, Alan sat down in the open pavilion and spoke with John Amadon, who has organized the conference for over 25 years. John's experience as a U.S. Marine led him to a lifelong commitment to ending war. Alan began by asking about the history of the Qatari Peace Conference. Well, the conference uh, originally started with my work to close School of the Americas. And School of the Americas is a U.S. Army terrorist training camp in Fort Benning, Georgia. And it, it was closed briefly uh, and then reopened after some cosmetic changes were made. And it's now called WINSEC, or the Western Hemispheric Institute for Security Cooperation. And sadly, it's still there and still running. Yeah, it began as a yeah, peace walk or pilgrimage, uh, whatever you like to call it. And I realized, you know, in walking that I would never reach enough people this way. So I, I thought it would be better to make it into a conference. But Has it always been here at the shrine? Yeah, it's been here. It's been here. It's been a very good place. Uh, I believe in um, spiritual forces at play. Also a lovely spot in the country where people come and they relax. It's a beautiful place whether, you know, you don't have to be Catholic to come here because nature speaks to everybody all the time. People come up here and they relax and they start talking to each other in a very natural way. And that's a beautiful thing. If, if you were to, in a few words, say what the Peace Conference, Kateri Peace Conference is for, what is your goal? Uh, is there anything that combines all 25 of them? The hope that we will achieve a sustainable society, uh, that people will learn that killing people, killing other people will not solve your problems. And that, I mean, you know, we'd really like for people to love each other uh, or treat each other with respect and dignity and kindness. And we also, um, one should have an open mind and start looking at what all of the cultures around the world have to offer. I mean, Americans are pretty notorious for not traveling and really being very much ignorant of the world. A lot of what I learned is by traveling in Latin America. I used to go down to Guatemala, and when I was down there, I, a civil war was going on in the 80s. And, you know, and I'm looking around saying, there's not enough money here to fund this kind of mayhem. I think it was Newsweek did an article in 93 on the School of the Americas. I learned it was my taxpayer dollar and my government and my army training. What interests do the American people have in torture and murder and rape in the subversion of democracy? 
who has spoken here? We have just some big hitters at the 25th conference. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the people here today, Kathy Kelly, uh, uh, David Swanson, uh, glorious new to our conference, and she is... Um, Gloria Caballero. Roca. Right. Yeah, she is fabulous. And Deborah Sweet, she's fabulous, too. And Nick Motern, um, amazing, 85, going strong, so thoughtful, so gentle. I mean... But over the years, I mean, we've had Father Roy Bourgeois, who started the SOA Watch and really was where the roots of this conference come from. Bishop Gumbleton here several times, Ray McGovern. We've had some really serious academics like Stephen Bronner and Lawrence Davidson. Then we had Chief Johnny Bob, a Western Shoshone spiritual person one year. We have Ann Wright has spoken here several times, Bill Quigley, a, a really well-known trial lawyer who say megan rice uh, sister megan rice and michael wally who, who spoke just here. died recently right and bill quigley handled their trial in um, for the oak ridge action at the nuclear vault there jim jennings an amazing man of conscience international i mean we've we've had so many wonderful speakers who are working so hard to um, create a world medea benjamin blaze Bomb Payne, who is deceased. Chris Antel, Reverend uh, Chris Antel. Steve Brayman, uh, a professor from, uh, I believe it was RPI, and he was the inspiration for the book. Uh, and the book, Bending, Bending the, the Ark. Striving for Peace and Justice in the Age of Endless War. And this was put, uh, published in 2020 by SUNY Press, and it's a compilation of essays by some of the speakers who were here, about 15, essentially answering the question on how they um, became peace activists and some of their history. You know, and the interesting thing for me, I'm so glad we did this book because we have a, a record that we can now reference uh, the conference titles and names and some of the speakers. But what was really interesting for me was I didn't actually know I was on a road and I tr- traveled a long ways down this road. Um, until uh, you know we're getting kind of near the end of it uh so um end of the conference is this the last conference uh i don't know that it'll be the last but it i don't know that there'll be many after this unless some young people come along and take it over there you know i've been doing this 20 actually this is actually 26 years now and uh I, there are some things I want to do, um, other you know other things I want to do. John Amidon, so thank you so much for sitting down with us, telling us about the Qatari Peace Conference. Delighted to do so. So glad you could come up and join us. All right, thank you. Early Saturday morning, before the conference, we met with four of the presenters in the Qatari Shrine Sanctuary. Thank you all for, for joining us here. Uh, we are Bar Crawl Radio. We're not at a bar. We're at the uh, Kateri Tikawatha Shrine, National Shrine. And we're in the, um, I guess we're in the sanctuary or the main area of, of the shrine. Uh, and we're here with um, four peace activists. Um, so I'm going to start with Nick Motern. Let me just say a little bit about you. You're a reporter, a researcher, a writer political organizer, and you work to stop uh, war drones. Uh, can you say something about yourself, and, and what are you going to be talking about today, Nick? Well, I, I think I should say that um, in 
1963, I was a member of the United States Navy, and part of my experience was over in uh, Vietnam, where I, I didn't see combat, but I did see a lot of what war can do. And I think it's part of why I've continued to try to organize to, to oppose war. Are and you a Veterans for Peace um, I am. Member? I'm a member. On, I'm, I'm on the National Board of Veterans for Peace. Also, uh, right now, I'm working on a project uh, with uh, Kathy Kelly, Brad Wolf, and some other people, Merchants of Death, War Crimes Tribunal. And it's a series. It's going to be a series of video episodes beginning on November 12th uh, of this year. Today, uh, what I want to present, I'm very curious about how people see themselves in this time as organizers. So it's kind, of a, kind of a look at who, who are we. Well, yes, and, and, and encouraging action, you know, among ourselves. Great, great. Thank you. And David Swanson is with us. Um, he is an author, activist, journalist, radio host. Um, he's the director of World Beyond War, which is a global nonviolent movement to end war and establish a just and sustainable peace. There's much more we could say about you, David, but I wanted to get to your statement um, about what you're going to be speaking about today. Well, I, I hope to speak at least in part about the war in Ukraine and how we can be talking to people who aren't in this room and don't agree with the need to end the war in Ukraine uh, or believe that the way to end it is to continue arming and supporting one side of it uh, because I think both sides have made very clear, uh, despite their own propaganda efforts, that they see no end in sight, that this is an endless years-long stalemate war unless it goes nuclear, uh, which is a threat to the whole world. And of course, the war itself has the greatest impediment to global cooperation on the non-optional crises of climate and homelessness and poverty and, and as an incredibly destructive force environmentally and in cutting off grain shipments and so forth is a threat to many, many millions of people. Uh, and so I, I, I hope to talk a little bit about how to end the war because both sides have made compromise taboo. And unless you can comp, we teach our little children how to compromise, but we don't teach our governments. And, and unless we do, it's, it's endless. And, and I think people don't know that the US government has stepped in and prevented peace negotiations. People don't know that the Ukrainian government and nearby Eastern European governments, you know, fear that if there's any end to the infinite free weapons, they'll have to start negotiating peace. Well, you're darn right. That's what we need to be doing is negotiating peace. Gloria Cabrera Roca yes. is a Cuban-American academic activist, community organizer, and fighter for peace, justice, and the preservation of the Pacamama. And Gloria is a member of the Green Rainbow Party Coalition. Yes. Um, Gloria, great to meet you. Thank you so much. Likewise. Will you nice be uh, you. <laughs> Sorry. Will you be talking about uh, Pachamama today? Pachamama, yeah, which means, which is the earth. And in my Yoruba tradition, I am Cuban. We cherish, we acknowledge, we revere, revere <laughs> uh, the environment, the earth, the water, the wind, you know, 
everything that has to do, that sustains us as human beings. Yeah, we need the water and we need the air. We need clear living. And for that, we need to stop all wars, all the destruction of the nature, of nature. And um, I would like also to talk about how, people, how important it is to travel for Americans to go outside, to break their bubbles and meet people that look different, that speak different languages and eat their culture and understand they're missing out on a lot of the beautiful things that life has to offer, which is camaraderie, culture, dance, you know, food, walking together. That's peace. Otherwise, we're going to be trapped into this propagandized, uh, you know, world that we live here in the United States. Get out and travel. Get out and See travel. See the rest of the world. Yes. There's, there's more than America. There's a lot more than America. So, so Pacha is Earth? Pacha, Pacha Mama, Mama, yes. And um, the Earth. I read the land. Mm-hmm. I read that St. Um, Katari is a patron saint of the environment. Mm-hmm. So yes, just like in my tradition, Oshun, by the way, yesterday was her day. We celebrate Oshun, the Virgin of Charity, just preserving the earth, the sweetness that is needed in these times, you know, to uh, for dip- diplomatic relationships and talking and negotiation. We need to celebrate that Pachamama Oshun. Yeah, yes. and maybe start listening to each other too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Deborah Sweet is the director of World Can't Wait, working to stop U.S. government crimes. She has worked against U.S. wars and for social justice since she was 15. In 1970, while receiving a humanitarian award at the White House, she confronted President Richard Nixon over his responsibility for killing millions in Southeast Asia. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, a pleasure to meet you, Ms. Sweet. Mm-hmm. What will you be talking about at today's peace conference? I thought I might talk a little bit about peace. <laughs> okay. In the sense of we all have a responsibility to treat others with respect and to model mm-hmm. interactions with other human beings and really be the kind of society that we want to have. On the other hand, none of us can be at peace mm-hmm. with what is going on in the globe today. And especially the fact that we live in the number one superpower, the imperialist beast. We have a super important responsibility to act to stop these crimes. We will be talking about the proxy war between Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the U.S. and Russia over Mm -hmm. the people of Ukraine, and Mm -hmm. and, uh, the U.S. government seems willing to fight to the last Ukrainian to win that war. I think that that's a very important message mm-hmm. that we need to keep emphasizing. Mm-hmm. I think we've been fighting against the Russians for a long time, yeah, going back years going now. back to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you can argue that that the bomb was dropped to show be, be, them. to show Russia that we're you know we're, yeah. we're, we're in control. Sure. Okay, thank you all for joining us. Um, let's start with an easy question for all of you. Um, and this comes directly from Bending the Ark, which is a book written by John Amidon mm. and uh, Maureen Armand. And uh, a lot of these questionings come out of this book, Bending yeah. the Ark. Why work for peace and justice in a society which all through its history is bent on its own destruction? 
so lacking in vision and empathy, so lost in the meaningless pursuit of excessive materialism and militarism, a society that is willing to embrace a planetary suicide through catastrophic climate change, through holding on to first strike option, through perpetuating racial gender hatreds. And for that matter, why spend 25 years, as in this conference has been the 25th year, running a small annual peace conference when no one is listening? <laughs> I open that to all of you. Yeah, well, I can keep opening so that you guys follow me. Gloria. So um, it's interesting, the question and the statement. Um, I lived 30 years in Cuba, and this conference is 25 years. Of my 30 years in Cuba, it's always fighting for peace with this country. And the fight is, uh, is, not, um, t is not taking using the army you know, weapons. It's just people in the street fighting every day for food, for resources, for oil, and uh, fighting for the fact that the United States needs, people in the United States need to understand that this is the most propagandized country in the world, brainwashed, created uh, a boogeyman out there. People don't, are not willing to see or wake up it's a society that is siloed, you know, they've been atomized. And we lived in our little spaces and we consume as though we are the only ones in the planet. And we forget that we have neighbors down there in Central America, in South America, and North America, Canada, and the rest of the world. So why fight? Because someone has to keep rattling that snake so that people keep wake, waking up. We cannot wait till the last minute to wake up because it's gonna be too late. Yes, it's only a bunch of us, you know, a handful of us, but please, yes, let's keep fighting, let's keep rattling that snake, because we need the world. And it's not for us, it's for our children, our grandchildren. It's for everybody, so I want to leave it there. Yeah. You know, you sometimes don't find out for decades that people were listening. Um, there are millions of examples. Some of the best, I think, are in a book by an Albany New York professor named Lawrence Whitner who recalls that people were protesting in front of the White House uh, when Kennedy was in there uh, not to resume nuclear testing. They had a small crowd, they were making a crazy demand, nobody was listening, you know, and they found out decades later that Kennedy had been looking out the window at them, had mm -hmm. been talking about them, had been influenced by them, had made the decision because of what they'd done, and of course if people had known that at the time, the crowd would have been a, a hundred times bigger and they would have had another rally the next day, you know. And it's, it's important to know that people probably are listening and you probably are influencing uh, people. You know, there, there's a great uh, peace activist in Maine named Bruce Gagnon who says, you know, he was slowly influenced by the peace protesters protesting outside the military base where he was in the military. And the peace protesters had no clue ever that they influenced him, but they did, you know? And, and if the choice is nuclear apocalypse and climate collapse, wouldn't you rather say the right thing even if nobody was listening? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, you're talking, I'm... I'm my eyes are kind of welling up. I'm looking at Deborah because last night you were quite emotional. Mm. Um, do you have an answer to this? I had to follow Gloria. It was <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, it was my pleasure to follow her. 
It is so, you know, I'll echo what David said. Mm -hmm. Our first mm -hmm. responsibility as human beings and people who want to lead, influence others mm -hmm. is always to tell the truth and to keep working on what that truth is. What I want to speak to today is the fact that this is not just a matter of greed or human failings. This mm -hmm. is a system we're living mm -hmm. under, capitalism, mm -hmm. and its modern expression of imperialism, which not only gobbles up the resources of the global south in particular, but exploits the people so brutally. All across the world we're seeing the effects of this. 65 million refugees from the so-called war on terror and now millions and millions more from the climate. The destruction of the climate by this very system, not only with its military preparations, but just the fact that this society, this country, this capitalism produces more liquid fossil fuels than anywhere else and uses more of it. It's the U.S. military. Yes. That's the biggest institutional mm -hmm. use. Um, there's a psychiatrist named Robert J. Lifton. He's uh, probably in his 90s right now. Um, and one thing I was very, that resonated with me in a book that he wrote, and he said that uh, people who are very, very afraid of what's going on, uh, the thing that he's observed that's the most helpful to them is if they get involved in trying to prevent the, the danger, to stop the, the behaviors, uh, I don't mean violently, but through persuasion. And he was speaking, you know, at that time most specifically about nuclear war. So as a, as a psychiatrist, he felt that when we are terrified, or when we do feel uh, powerless, the best response for our mental health and, and sense of well-being is to actually be active in, in trying to shut it down, whatever it is. I think that's part of why I continue to, to work on this, mm -hmm. because it feels so much better than to just keep taking it all the time. Yes. Right, right. I, it, it, it reminds me a little bit what David was saying yesterday. Is like, how do you wake people up and get them active? Do you scream at them or do you whimper mm -hmm. at them? But Becky has a question. Okay. It's for everybody. Fill in the blank. War is a result of, okay, here are the choices. Materialism, corporatism, fear of the other, lust for power, religion following God's plan, Social media and misinformation, ignorance, other. All of the above. <laughs> of course. All, all of them, anything, anything all else. All of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I, saw, I saw, Deborah, you gave a little kind of wince when, when um, the list came on that a certain kind of follower of religion as a cause. I mean, was I reading your face wrong? No, I, I was thinking the same as Gloria, all of the above, but I do feel... Religion is a force that has done so much damage in mm -hmm. the world. First mm -hmm. of all, it obscures truth and reality. Leads to people giving up. It what? leads to people mm -hmm. not feeling like human beings have any agency in determining things. 
I said all of the above because it reminds me, reminded me of colonialism and all the voyages, you know, how in the name of God they have to conquer and civilize the indigenous peoples of this land and of South America. In the name of God, how they burned and killed and enslaved black people and then enslaved the Irish. And in the name of God, we're still with God bless America, bombing and destroying the world. Yes. If, if we didn't have the religious peace activists, the peace movement would be greatly <laughs> weakened. Uh, I mean, they are absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. But religion, teaching people that there's some other authority responsible and that you should believe things that you have no reason to believe and that there's some other life after this life that matters more than this life. This is incredibly destructive stuff, not just the division between different religions, but the habits of thought. And then the freedom of religion that was in so many ways a good thing in the creation of this country has ingrained in people the idea that they have the right to believe whatever the heck they want, and you have to respect that right, even if it's destructive nonsense they're spewing on their on their social media page. You know, it's their right to have that belief. And this is incredibly damaging. It's just insidious. It, it, the, the notion that people should be respected in putting out whatever, you know, horrible statements and beliefs they want. So I, I think at some point, we have to have respect for verifiable facts uh, because they, they have, you know, they're going to kill we're, us. We're clicking. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, part of that, and I don't really hear a lot of people talking about it, is the idea that this is my belief and it's the only belief, mm -hmm. and there is no reason for me to listen mm -hmm. to anything you have to say. You don't even have to think anymore. Mm -hmm. Just give it all up. Yeah, so it's, it's the lack of listening and, and understanding that someone else has a different point of view. No, some people feel like there is no other point of view. There's just, you know, my belief, yeah. my belief. You know. Well, I, I, I think in that, you know, in that regard, there is popular opinion that because a leader tells you that a war is necessary, but we're not really trained to, to say to ourselves, Anyone who tells us a war is necessary will not only want to take advantage of other people, they will want to take advantage of you because the war is always the muscle that enforces exploitation wherever, wherever. I don't know what, you know, humanities may be getting to the point to understand that when some leader tells you that a war is needed, like we're hearing about China right now, that these are very dangerous people that's something that I think, you know, people in this country have never really been caused to question. I keep thinking about this over the last few days about this speech uh, <laughs> by, uh, it's not a total speech, but by Malcolm X when he says the difference between the, uh, the house Negroes and the field Negroes. And the house Negroes, when the master gets sick, they say, we sick. The field Negroes say, hope he dies <laughs> and so we're trained to be house negroes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we don't understand that yeah i, I would I say that, the religion in this country goes an, another step further a religion in this country is freedom and democracy that somehow the u.s is ordained to be the 
emblem of freedom and democracy and can hold that as a weapon over every other society, completely illegitimately, in my opinion, this country was founded on genocide mm -hmm. and the enslavement of millions of people. Come on. Well, that's Wasn't that a manifest destiny, right? Exactly. So manifest destiny, God gave us that power to be undo because in the name of God, um, we have to civilize, and in the name of God, we're still. People talk at post-colonial about post-colonial studies. Come on, come on. No, this is new. You know, colonialism. We have almost 1,000 military bases all over the world. People don't talk about that's colonialism. That's imperialism, and now Africa is starting to wake up and kick those bastards out and people don't understand that Africa is being enslaved for centuries, even though they have proclaimed you know, independence in the 60s. Um, and in the name of God, I also believe that people should have freedom of expression. You know, In the name of freedom, we need to allow people to talk and push back. We, need, we are the ones that need to push back, because if we censor people to tell, because they, what they say doesn't make any sense, then we are going to be censored. So let's let people talk, but let's about, push back. You're talking about censorship on the left and the right. And both, yes, yes. There's censorship. I think there's even more censorship uh, among the left, the Democrats. And now censorship, it's all over the place. It's, 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 it's dangerous, and it's not doing us any favor. People should talk, but need, we need to have what you said, David you know, objective facts to push back. But uh, I am in favor of people talking because I want to talk. And you talk, yes. you talk beautifully, Gloria. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, this question is, is aimed at David because you talk about the Ukraine war um, in, in your podcasting and, uh, and actually, I mean, Deborah, everyone can get involved with that. Is there, David, such a thing as a just war ever? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not according to a book I wrote called War is Never Just. That's why I ask uh, you. <laughs> I, I, there isn't, um, you know, and people like to imagine otherwise. Um, if, you, if you go back and look through the ancient uh, criteria for a just war, you know, a lot of it is, is utter nonsense and, and no war has ever measured up. Um, what about but, World War II? Wasn't that a just war? Didn't we have to fight the Nazis? No. Uh, Nazism needed to be defeated. It should never have been supported in the first place by Western nations. It's, uh, corporations from the United States shouldn't have gone on supplying the Nazis right through the course of the war. Uh, but the escalation of the war was as much the, the Allies as the Axis. Uh, and the war killed several times the number of people killed in the camps, which are used post-war as justification number one, mm. despite the fact that it was absolutely public knowledge, biggest media stories of, of the month repeatedly leading up to the war, that the Nazis wanted to expel all of those people, not kill them. Uh, and it was the collective, shameless, anti-Semitic, racist, selfish, announcement of the community of nations led by the United States that they wouldn't accept them 
that led to the Nazis saying, well, we'll kill them. Hmm. Uh, you, nobody's told this, right? Mm. We, like mm. to, we like to feel very self-righteous watching movies about Anne Frank and not notice that her family applied for a visa and knew people and did jump through every hoop and had every advantage and still got turned down like everybody else. Mm. Uh, and, and so, you know, obviously leading up to a war, you don't have to make the war happen. It, it takes a concerted effort to avoid peace. Uh, but even in that moment, even in that moment when Russian tanks are rolling into Ukraine, war is not the only option. And we've seen it in, in scattered, disorganized, unprepared, nonviolent efforts talking Russians out of those tanks. You know, if that, if that were the overall all approach, if a massive unarmed civilian resistance force were put into play instead of war, you wouldn't be risking all life on earth and feeling quite so cocky about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I must speak in the name of all the people who have been oppressed by this system. Look back to 1815. Who the hell has the business to tell Toussaint Louverture you could not rebel? against the French colonists. Who has the business? I, in 1970, I went to Canada. I met with the courageous Vietnamese women who were part of the liberation struggle. Their cause was just. Why can we, why should we in this imperialist country tell an oppressed people you cannot rise up in rebellion? Those are just rebellions. And I will, I will take that <laughs> all of my life. We cannot look at this situation right now and say that it is okay and we will accept the oppressed people of the world and in this country being shot down by the police, as, as is happening even more than in 2020. Being further ground down without saying there must be a response to this. Now, Mass nonviolent protest, yes, obviously. Our mission as activists in this is to get the movement of millions in this country to stand up against what the U.S. is doing around the world. I, I, if I can respond to Deborah's mm -hmm. question, even though it was rhetorical, uh, <laughs> you know that I don't spend my time telling the Iraqis not to fight back. I spend my time telling the United States to get out of Iraq. Mm -hmm. But if Iraqi friends ask me what works, I point to the evidence that nonviolent struggle works more often and longer lasting successes than violent. And when the people of Tunisia or Egypt or anywhere th overthrow a horrible government nonviolently, mm -hmm. nobody regrets it. Nobody goes back and says, well, if they only we could have killed some millions of people in the process, that would have been better, right? It, it, it's, if somebody wants to know what advice I would give, I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to point to the evidence. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of conversation mm -hmm. we need to have. This <clears> is <throat> exactly on point. World War II, in, in many ways, was a, a, a battle among various powers for overseas colonies. The U.S. had been conducting a brutal repression of Filipino people from the beginning of the 20th century. And so when the Japanese came there, what was going on? Well, maybe it was just an exchange of oppressors, and maybe the United States was looking toward how are we going to expand our power 
in the Pacific, just the way, just the way it is right now. So as a, as a child, I was totally deprived of any information about the motives of the United States in World War II. And they were not in any way innocent, pure motives. At the end of World War II, we did, with Operation Paperclip, an importation of Nazi scientists yeah. and of technology. Uh, I was down in uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico, on a uh, protest for, against drone training at uh, Holloman Air Force Base. And I walked by a, a, a junkyard that belonged to an air and space museum. And here in the junkyard were, was an old V-2 missile. This had all been brought here after World War II so that people could learn how to do exactly what the Nazis had been doing. People here in this country do not have the information they need to sort out what's happening right now. Well, let, me, let, me, let, me follow, let me follow up on, on that. We, uh, we're here at this 25th annual Kateri Peace Conference, um, and the t one of the titles is Finding Our Way Past War. I'm wondering, not what is the message we tell to those people who are struggling in Africa or Ukrainians struggling there? What do we tell to the Americans? What message, what is the set of words that you can put together or the action that you could do that would wake people up, not a scream, not a whimper, but something that actually works. Do you have that formula, you peace activists? I don't. I have ideas, you know, very scattered ones. Naomi Klein wrote this book, The Shock Doctrine, right? There's this shock, which is an international you know, event. In this case, I'm going to uh, talk about COVID, right? that immobilizes us, that we try to learn how to deal with that. And we get siloed again because there is a pandemic, you need to uh, do social distancing and then understand what this new thing of living in the pandemic means. Meanwhile, there's a war that is being cooked and since we're not paying attention, we're just consenting because we're not even voting or, or, or looking at. So, the war, which is a proxy war, we don't know what the word means. What is proxy? I think people need to read more, educate themselves. I don't have a formula, but I'm willing to tell people to meet the immigrant they live with, you know, to understand their culture, their history, so that they understand more what the United States is about. Just go out there. Talk to a Mexican, talk to an Iraqi, talk to a Palestinian, talk to a Gemini, talk to a Cuban, you know, and it's easy. You don't have to go to another country. Just become more aware, you know, of the numbness that you've been living in and, uh, and do things that are very low profile. Open a book, go to Google. Where in the world is the map of Iraq, where in the world is Yemen, you know, just awaken that intellectual curiosity, and this is what is lacking here in this country. And I don't, I wouldn't fault that per person, I would fault the system. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage the American people to rise up and burn this building because it's killing us. Mm -hmm. It is killing us. I would give a, a dozen words to try to move people, I would say, 
3% of U.S. military spending could end starvation on Earth. And if you, yes. if you think through that, if you, you know, most, most... Wait a minute, 3% of, of the money that we spend on our military here in the U.S. would solve the starvation problems in the world? Right, mm. right. Well, I mean, this is U.N. figures. I, I'm looking at a trillion dollars. The U.S. spends well exactly. over a trillion dollars yes. a year yeah. on militarism. Yeah. 30 billion. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about ending poverty. I'm not mm. talking about ending hunger. I'm talking about ending starvation. But why couldn't we maybe splurge and take 4%? You know, I, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the fact is that the United States arms and trains and supports 90% of the worst, most oppressive governments on earth by the U.S. government's own definition, right? Most places on earth don't manufacture any weapons, don't have any military training academies. How, are there, why, how is there a coup in Africa every couple weeks with well-trained, well-armed forces? We're paying for that. What if we were paying for something a little wiser? What countries are going to hate you for providing food or medicine? Uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. You know, you, 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 got, you can't have these anti-U.S. terrorist organizations without a great deal of effort. Uh, and this is where our money goes. If there's a formula, it would be to get out in the street. That's where you really meet people of all kinds. And there's an opportunity to talk to them. When we're involved with our computers, we're very much talking to people who might think the same way we do. Politicians are really paid to be pacifists, you know, pacify the public. Yeah. And so when people get out in the street, it has a very powerful, and David was talking about this before, very powerful impact on politicians. Because when people get out in the street, it's totally against what they're trained to do mm -hmm. and what they're being paid to do, which is people who have the money want the public to basically stay asleep to the degree necessary other than to go to work and buy stuff. So when after 9-11, Bush comes out and says, keep shopping, that is the perfect formula. When people get out in the street, politicians get scared, and, and, and we learn. I told this story recently when I was 15 in Madison, Wisconsin, at the university, protesters were in the streets about the Dow chemical producing napalm in mm. Vietnam. And the tear gas floated in the window of my high school. And the French teacher said, we're going to close the windows. We're not going out there. But I did go out there. And it was the people being in the street that was, it, it helped change this society from the black liberation movement to the women's movement to the anti-war movement. That is the single biggest factor. But the question is, right now, how do we get people in the street? Yes. And part of what we, we have to tell people the truth, that this system right now is unsustainable. People are getting that message climate-wise. They need to get it in terms of nuclear war, and I very much appreciate David's call last night at the conference mm -hmm. to say we need to be raising this demand for no nuclear war. And what is it going to take? A real revolution. We mm -hmm. need to abolish the systems in this country, this government that oppresses the whole world. 
We need a constitution that says no nuclear weapons and a government that does everything possible to eliminate the use of nuclear weapons everywhere. I would imagine that the kind of protest work that you all do uh, is very difficult, um, physically and emotionally. Have you ever thought, I've had it, time to live in a, nor time to live a normal life? Let someone else do the peace work. It's too late for that now. <laughs> <laughs> it's exhausting. And at times, yes, I, I've thought about that. Well, why don't, why don't I just, you know, keep reading, doing my research, going to my, you know, intellectual conferences. I give talks at conferences, you know, here and there and then. But then I sit and say, but no, look at me. Look at me. I'm black. I need to be out there. I need to door knock. I need to shake people's you know, emotions and spirituality because it's not because, only because I'm black. It's because they already came after me. Why don't you think they're not going to come after you? You see? So, and it's exhausting. And uh, sometimes I'm afraid to because I have to pay bills, because I have to pay my mortgage, etc. And this is what, this is a fear of the system to enslave us into working to pay bills for them. And sometimes I just want to throw everything, but then who's going to be there? How am I going to sustain myself and my, my family? And it's a game that we have to be willing to play uh, while also dealing with our mental health, as you said, Nick. This is the only way that is healthy for me, just talking, being out there, um, mobilizing people. I do a lot of activism with my students, and this is important, getting that generation ready. And if they came for me, they are now coming for you. So realize that it's not only about Iraqi people or Yemeni people. Roosters come back home, come to roost, you know, <laughs> back home to roost. So uh, it's a two-way street. What goes out there comes back. Don't think that the war is out there. The war's already here. It's against us. They're coming against us. They're coming for us. You, you know, most peace activists tried regular jobs first. Mm -hmm. There's not a peace activist recruiting station on every corner. There's not a mm -hmm. multi-million mm -hmm. dollar advertising budget to get people into the peace movement. You have yeah. to find out about it somehow. Yes. Uh, and so most of us have tried other jobs because we didn't know any better. We didn't know the peace movement existed. Nobody told us. Uh, and I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't sell widgets. I couldn't work at a newspaper where some corporation was telling me what I could say. I know that I couldn't, that I couldn't live that way. I can only live saying what I think needs to be said morally uh, and honestly. Uh, and that's very satisfying. And there are millions and millions of people who do jobs that they take no satisfaction in whatsoever just to earn a buck. So if you can get by making a living doing what you think the world needs you to do even if you know you didn't need to make a living that's a pretty good thing mm. you know it's not something to complain about really i guess i don't think of it so much as a job at all i've never really never supported myself uh, being a revolutionary <laughs> peace activist 
but I heard a really good answer from uh, somebody asked Baba Vakian, the revolutionary leader, why have you not given up? And to me, that would amount to giving up, stopping what we're doing. And he said, it's because of all the people in my heart around the world and the people that I have known personally. I could not give up because a better world is possible. We don't have to live like this. This is not the only way human beings can be in the world. There's plenty of examples historically where people were not making war against each other, not profiting off of each other. We could have a socialist system that could provide people's needs and speak to their highest aspiration, even if they don't yet know what those are. This is our responsibility. We cannot give up. And we have to live with hope, not just based on an idea that that things should be better, but there is the potential and the possibility. Mm -hmm. We have to bring it about. Yeah. Well, I have a question. When you said normal life, uh, how, how would you describe normal life? Uh, I guess just that, that, that typical life that, um, that they would just um, describe, you know, well, no, going I mean, what, to working. What, what are the particulars of it? Uh, What's the I, subject matter? I go matter? to work, I, I have my drink at the bar after work, I get home, I do my golf game, I watch television, because I love television, and, uh, oh, I vote, I vote, I always vote. So typical life, raise my kids. That's my typical life. There's so many people that don't have that normal life. I mean, now people being disenfranchised up for voting, um, people being killed by police, and then as a parent, you don't sleep well if your child is not home by 11 or so. Um, you can't afford to just play a game um, because you, you have to figure out what to eat the next day. So normal is not normal. I think it's a very classy word for so many millions of Americans. In a world that, that it's at war on the verge of nuclear catastrophe, there's no more normal. Normal ceased to exist when this country was established. I think when that's a, that's a brilliant question. What is normal? Because yeah. we think we know what normal is, and there is no normal. Well, it's all effed up. It, yeah, but it, it's a kind of uh, model of comfort uh, and uh, not worrying about money. Most people aren't living that life, but they're, they're living under a dictatorship of that life, like the middle class, quote unquote. Most people aren't living a middle-class life in that ideal 50s, you know, mom-and-pop thing. But yet, we're told that's what we're supposed to look forward to. And that's sick. You see, and, and we have to ask ourselves about the mental health of this country. When we have to explain to people that it's in their own self-interest not to go out and kill other people. Because it could hurt the environment. Because it costs, you know, money. Suppose it was free to go kill people. Suppose we had no military budget at all. Suppose it was spent on everything we need in this country so that people could all have a comfortable life. Would it then be okay to go out and kill people? Suppose it was fine for the environment. Suppose that's just what the environment needed. We have to think about what is mental health. Imagine what normal might be when there is no wars anymore, when there's no... Imagine that normal. Well, it's hard to even imagine that, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. What is one experience you've had in your fight for peace that keeps you going? Being down at Zuccotti Square with a 
packed with people, shoulder to shoulder, and preventing the New York City police who wanted to beat the crap out of people from entering the park. I've never had an experience like that before or since. It was awesome. David, experience? Yeah, I mean, I want to think of sort of real world experiences uh, being uh, grabbed on one arm by the police and the other arm by, by fellow activists and they won and the police lost and I don't go to jail. I mean, those are great experiences, but I, I think more so as someone who, who writes books and would just write books if books paid what emails do, you know, meeting people who just tell you their whole worldview has changed dramatically and they're reading other books and they're doing things differently because they read one of your books. Um, you know, this is, you know, this is why people write books, you know. Mm -hmm. Deborah? Oh, I, can, I cannot pull out one experience, but I, I did have that confrontation with Nixon in 1970. And I, you Tell know. Tell us about that. Oh. <laughs> Give us a little more. You know, I got an award um, called the Young American Medal for Service because in high school I had organized one of the first walks where you give mm -hmm. money per... And we, we gave the money to um, Fannie Lou Hamer's Freedom Farm Co-op in Mississippi. I wish I could raise several hundred thousand just like that these days, mm -hmm. but um, that was 1968, I think. Anyway, I got this award from Nixon and... I wasn't going to go because I'm like a friggin' war criminal. Why would I even go to the White House? And, you know, wiser head said to me, well, you should go and maybe you could do some good. But I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. And Nixon um, had not talked to the media for six months because this was exactly six months after the invasion of Cambodia. Mm -hmm. yeah, he had... Gosh. Any, anyway, it was a big media moment, and he gave this speech about, these are not the young people that are out there protesting. Mm. And I'm like, oh, now you did it. That, that's totally me. So I had to say something to him, and I said, you can't be sincere about giving an award for humanitarian service when you're responsible for killing millions of people in Vietnam. It was just, I said it just like that, but it got picked up on the mic. Did, mm. did, did you notice his reaction? He, he had a lot of makeup on. He turned completely white. He looked at his watch. He said, I have an appointment, and he walked out. Wow. And that's when all the news media freaked out. But mm. it, it was just an example of the tiniest person being able to speak truth to power that told me this system is vulnerable. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They're in a machine that is eating up the world, and there's very few of them that are ever going to be able to break out of it. Mm. It's all on us. I didn't make Casey's been in Cuba. It's been amazing just walking in front of the uh, American, um, but at the time, because we didn't have an embassy, mm -hmm. American consulate, with tens of thousands of people just yelling against the embargo and against imperialism. And it's a thrilling, you know, amazing moment. Um, I've never been surrounded by so many people that are like-minded. It was tens of thousands of people yelling to lift the embargo, to stop the criminal, you know, embargo against us. Yes. And yet here we are. With Here one? we are still yelling, you know, yeah. letting the American people that, yes, Cuba is still embargoed. 
and it's been tightened and tightened under Biden, not only Trump. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you, you have a conference you've got to, yeah. you've got to run, and there's a <laughs> breakfast waiting out there for you. Let's ask this last question. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever been thanked for your service to your country? And we're not talking about Nick's military service. <laughs> he knows. I didn't thank you for your service, by the way. Thank you. I've stopped doing that. that. I've stopped doing that. Yeah. In a, in a number of cases, of places we've protested, things we've done you know, mm-hmm. consistently, people have come up on the street yes. and said thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. That's good. Gloria? Yeah. Yes, we've done that, and uh, I did one with you, Nick, uh, in front of McGovern in Northampton. Mm-hmm. But I've done other you know, rallies in front of McGovern with Mass Peace Action and Latin American Solidarity Coalition. And it's not a lot of us, but people do go by and they honk and they put the peace sign and people walk and say, thank you, thank you. I didn't know about that. So, yeah, these are little moments that, of appreciation that I really appreciate right. because people are looking and listening. Right. Yeah. And people have thanked David for, for your books. <laughs> oh, yeah, no question. In a, the peace movement, people give you awards. People thank you all the time. Um, but I, I'm on the advisory board of the group that Nick's on the board of, Veterans for Peace. And uh, I think uh, everyone in there agrees with me that they don't, they want this habit ended of, mm-hmm. of saying thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when they've, they've militarized our society so much, they're mm-hmm. doing it in random places on airplanes. They're you know, asking everyone to th- thank the people who they let on first for their service. And I think it's important to do what I learned from another peace activist, Medea Benjamin, mm-hmm. to stand up and say, who wants to thank teachers? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Who wants to thank yes. artists? Yes. Mm-hmm. Who wants mm-hmm. to thank historians? Poets. Who wants to thank the people who cooked your food today? You know, mm-hmm. and, and because you. there you, are you, services you've that, done that? that you should. Yes, and, you, mm-hmm. and everyone, you. when you go in Starbucks, your name should be unionized. And and mm-hmm. and when they shout unionized, <laughs> then you say thank you for your service. Wow, thank you, David. <laughs> so cool. Thank you for your service. <laughs> yeah, we we do need to thank each other. That's very important. But I, I I've been adopting the uh, that now. This is very controversial. F you for your service <laughs> because you were not serving the people of the world. You were serving this imperialist government, and I've been thanked for saying that a couple of times. Now this was for Vietnam veterans who are pretty politically conscious. Um, but I, we've also been thanked for sending um, veterans into the schools. Mm-hmm. We have a program in World Can't Wait called We Are Not Your Soldiers. And mm-hmm. we get the greatest letters from teachers and kids that said, you opened my eyes. I had no idea what it meant to go into the military and possibly lose your humanity. This is Bar Crawl Radio. At the 25th Qatari Peace Conference, we want to thank Nick Morton, David Swanson, Director of World Beyond War, Gloria Caballero Roca, and Deborah Sweet, Director of World Can't Wait, for joining us today for this essential conversation on bringing peace to our troubled world. Thank you so thank much. You. We, need, we need to have these conversations. These are important. Yeah, good questions. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, 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 thank you so much. Thank you. This test message has been initiated by Peace Alert Authorities. 
in coordination with anyone seeking end to war. This announcement is reaching out through words and actions to the rest of humanity in your area. This is an actual emergency. This is far from a test. Nope. Unfortunately, we now return you to your regular programming. Eat.